The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Existing forever and ever and ever and ever and ever into the past. And you decided to create from nothing you made this place. You reign over it. It responds to your will. You speak and things change and things come into existence and things pass away. You are God, the one with whom we have to deal. And that would be a terror for us if you were awful. If you were evil, if you were vindictive, we would still have to deal with you because you are God. But praise your name that you are not like that. You are God of all grace, holy and righteous to be sure, but slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, full of grace. And I pray this morning, Father, that you would take those two things, the fact that you are God, that you are a God of grace and that you would take those two things and in the hearts and minds of those of us here, take them, use them to change us. To draw us to, to rivet us to you because you are God. By grace, draw us to you, rivet us to you. By grace, conform us to you. Show us your graciousness and make it winsome in our minds. Pour love on us this morning, I pray. For those here who don't know you, Lord, draw them. For those here who do, confirm, deepen, encourage their relationship with you. Make yourself known through your scriptures, I pray. Give clarity to my words. Give attention to our minds and hearts. Lift up Christ for his glory and for the good of your people here, I pray. In his name. Amen. One evening, Bart Simpson, theologian, (laughs) sat down to dinner with Homer, Marge, and Lisa, When asked to say grace, he prayed, Dear God, we paid for all this stuff ourselves, so thanks for nothing, amen. Now, obviously, The Simpsons is a cartoon that's trying very hard to portray the character Bart as irreligious and insulting and provocative and whatnot, so we expect that sort of thing from him. So far more important than whatever Bart Simpson says is what real people in the real world say or think people like us people who are prone to drift persistently 
into thinking that what we have, what we are, what we will become is owed primarily to what we are and what we do. We make ourselves, especially in this country where we, we idolize pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We are self-made people. And so we come to think very highly of ourselves, depending upon ourselves, trusting in our own strength, in our own wisdom, in our own planning, in our own performance, and all the while forgetting God. Even while we talk about Him, perhaps even while we talk to Him in prayer. That's the issue raised for us this morning by God in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Our penchant to make much of ourselves and to forget Him even while engaging with Him. As we've been working our way through the book of Deuteronomy, we have mentioned from time to time how the book itself bears this resemblance to ancient treaties that were made between great kings and the people that they had conquered and and brought under their sway. And so following those treaties, the book itself gives a historical context and then briefly stipulates the basic requirements, the, the basic laws that will govern this relationship between the king and the people, in this case, God and us. That's chapter 5, the Ten Commandments. And then what follows in the treaty and in this book then is a, an elaboration on, a, a reiteration of, a, a telling the same story from a different angle again and again and again to kind of flesh out those very basic statements. And we saw that as well. Beginning in chapter 6, where we turned and saw the great commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with everything in you. It's essentially the first commandment all over again. You shall have no other gods before me. Last week, chapter 7, the same thing. Still fleshing out the first commandment. As he gives issues, as he gives uh, instructions for the warfare that the people were about to enter into. We saw how that applies to us and it's telling us to fight against all that would drag us away from God. To fight for holiness and righteousness. A total commitment to Him and no idolatry. First commandment again. No other gods before me. And the same thing is this morning in chapter 8. Moses, under God's direction, is still addressing the issue of the supremacy of God over all things into every corner of our lives. That's still what's on his mind. No other God before him. Love him, trust him, depend on him, fear him, because he is everything. He made everything, he gives everything, he sustains everything, therefore he is worthy of everything. Graciously, we see in this chapter, graciously God working in the midst of His people to show them that and to work into them a greater dependence upon Him, a stronger tie to Him. So my hope this morning is that God would graciously do that same work in us. He would awaken us by grace, awaken us to the fact that He is God. And would draw us to Him and rivet us upon Him. So we're going. Let me read the text, Deuteronomy chapter 8, and then I'll pass back through it to kind of lay out the basic outline of it before I make a couple of observations. May He draw us into deeper dependence on Him this morning. 
a real, my hope, I, He must liberate us from this, from the delusion that apart from Him we can do anything of any significance. That it's so, that idea is so deeply rooted in us, He must take that out. Because we can't apart from Him. And He do that. You read Deuteronomy 8. Beginning verse 1. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these forty years in the wilderness, that He might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. And He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that He might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you and your foot did not swell these forty years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in His ways and by fearing Him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron, and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land He has given you. Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments and His rules and His statutes which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that He might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware, lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of My hand have gotten Me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth, that He may confirm His covenant that He swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. Word of God, Deuteronomy 8. The chapter begins with what is becoming a very familiar exhortation. Be careful to do the whole commandment. 
comes from God to Moses to the people. It's all over. It's in practically every chapter. It's throughout the whole book. God expects obedience from His people. And that obedience leads to the blessing of God falling on the people. They enter into the promised land and they'll be multiplied there and they'll eat well and they'll be at peace and they'll be secure and they'll have long life. And that comes to those not just who simply claim to be fastened to God, but those who actually are by genuine faith that shows itself in the fruit of genuine faith, obedience. It's all over the place in Deuteronomy. And that familiar point leads off verse 1. The call to obedience comes again in verse 6. And the opposite of it, the warning against disobedience in verse 11. And finally, it closes off the passage in 19 and 20. Beginning, middle, and end, all throughout. Obey the Lord. You'll be blessed in life. Watch out that you don't disobey Him, because if you do disobey Him, you will perish at His hand, just like everybody else who disobeys Him. That's the thread running through the passage. He's extremely consistent. Follow me. Serve me. And the blessing of God follows. Here, but he's doing something else here especially. He's working on, you see in verse 6, he talks about this obedience, the walking in his ways, and he also grabs the heart piece. Fear him. That's in the heart. And again, a little refresher. Biblical fear is not terror shrinking back and cringing. It's a a holy reverence, a carefulness, a sober-mindedness. Fear Him and walk in His ways. So He's got the heart and He's got the obedience and they're connected. And in this passage, while He runs the obedience all the way through it, He's also especially trying to work on this inside stuff that supports and leads to the obedience. And He's going to do that especially by raising up two contrasting situations. It's going to work on the heart attachment to him that in turn then generates obedience. The first few verses, verses 2 to 5, and then he mentions it again down below in 15 and 16. He talks about the wilderness. That's the, the first situation, the, the wilderness wandering. He brings that up, pointing out something. This desert, this wilderness, he describes it as a terrifying place, a great wilderness full of scorpions and and terrifying animals and whatnot, short on water, short on food. It's it's what the desert is. It's normal desert. And in that place, the people are humbled and tested and tried, brought to the end of themselves, brought to shortage. He's testing them. What's in your heart here? If I take away all the stuff, what's in your heart? And to be honest, the people did not do very well. They grumbled continually, though God gave them abundant evidence that He was trustworthy. Though He showed He was dependent, they constantly grumbled against Him. In the desert, He shows them, verse 4, look, look, at, look at this, I will keep your clothes from wearing out 40 years. They wore the same clothes. Your foot from swelling probably means you did not grow your shoes either. That's miraculous. And in the desert, he brought forth water out of a rock. Repeatedly. And, and the, the, the pinnacle of miracles, he mentions this twice, he fed them with manna. And the word manna indicates how much of a miracle this was. It means what is it? Because they didn't know what it was. 
They had not heard of it, nor had their fathers ever heard of it, and yet it falls out of the sky six days out of seven for decades. And then the moment they enter into the promised land, it stops forever. never happens again. He clothes them miraculously. He gives them drink out of a rock. And He feeds them out of thin air. Abundant proof that He's dependable. That He's gracious. Able to meet their needs. As miraculously He does this at the point when they have nothing else to stand on. And they need to keep that lesson in mind because, moving to the second contrast, he's about to, in fulfilling his promises, he's about to deliver them into the land of promise where his miraculous provision is going to step back, kind of behind the curtain. And all the stuff that they're going to have is going to be right in front of them. By normal means. They needed water out of a rock. Well, in the land, there are streams and springs and rivers and fountains everywhere. Plentiful water. As he walks through verses 7 through 10 there, he's kind of contrasting the stuff that was miraculously provided in the desert is just normally provided in this land. All the food that they they needed, manna from heaven out of thin air, well, now they're going to have abundant wheat and barley and vines and figs and pomegranates and olives and honey and bread without scarcity, everything they need to eat, minerals aplenty for wealth. Pouring his bounty on them in this place. They've come out of the ground everywhere. Verse 12, though, in time as they eat their fill and expand and build more houses and they're multiplied in number and in wealth and in food, watch out, verse 14, that you not become proud. That's what that little phrase, heart lifted up, means. Uh, that you not become proud in heart. Yeah, become proud and forget God thinking my hands, my power, the might of my own hand has gotten all of this for me. Watch out. And when I put you in this place of blessing and my miraculous hand draws to the background that you not become convinced that your own hands have made this. Because if you go there and you forget me, replacing me with other gods, you will perish. Take it to the bank, you will perish. Three times at the end, he says. That's the text. Working two contrasts. And many, many things in these two contrasts are, are identical. He talks about attitudes of humility and pride. He talks about provision of food and food and water and water. And the issue in it is, where's your heart? What's it set on? We're going to approach this this morning under this main heading. Let me give this main sentence here that's my my main topic. Then I'm going to divide it into two observations. Here's my summary sentence. Take care not to forget God. Because He alone is the gracious source of life. Take care not to forget God. God, because He alone is the gracious source of life. It's the issue raised here. Most often I begin with God. I first begin making an observation about God, usually because God's foundational. 
We should develop the habit of beginning our thinking with God. But this morning I'm going to flip it and begin with the exhortation that comes to us because I think it, it unpacks the passage a little more cleanly. So here's our first observation, the exhortation that puts its finger on our problem. Take care not to forget God. Watch out. Take care. This comes out of the repeated warnings and commandments throughout the passage. So we noted the larger concern that's again again to the book is obedience, but beneath that there's a subsidiary concern that, that's kind of the heart thing on the inside that would lead to the obedience. Verse 2 stated positively, you shall remember the way the Lord led you. And then in warning, verse 11, take care lest you forget the Lord. Verse 14, lest your heart be lifted up in pride and you forget Him. 18, you shall remember the Lord. 19, if you forget Him, you'll perish. All throughout the passage, remember, don't forget. Don't forget, but remember. And when the Bible here is talking about remembering or forgetting, it's not discussing being able or unable to consciously recall some facts or to remember the existence of a person. Like I might, I might not be able to remember some of my high school classmates' names or even to remember that some of those people were in my high school class. That's not what he's talking about here. There's nobody in Israel who, who could ever conceivably have forgotten, literally slipped on God. The whole nation was built around him. The whole calendar was built around him. With the festivals that they would go up to Jerusalem and worship, there's a great big building right in the middle of the city, which is right in the middle of the country. Everything was oriented around Yahweh. There's no way they could have forgotten him, but they constantly forgot him. In the sense of, don't overlook him, or downplay him, or dismiss him, or rationalize him away. Every human heart... Automatically, you get up in the morning, you cannot get away from this. Every human heart is set on something. It has a focus. It shifts perhaps from moment to moment, but at any given moment, there is something that's driving you. Sometimes it's comfort, sometimes it's excitement, sometimes it's fear. Sometimes it's what people want, sometimes it's the desire to earn money. Something is driving us in, in every moment. And there are times, I want to be clear about this, there are times that we should be focused on and be driven by certain things. If you are physically driving your car, I hope you are driven by safety, that you're giving full attention to it, that you're not daydreaming or con concerned more with what's going on in the backseat. I hope that you're focused and concerned. But what? But there's a, a larger issue than what's going on right in the front. It's what's going on behind, maybe the, the soundtrack of your mind, if you will. What's playing right back there while you're driving, while you're walking through life? Such that when something pauses here or, or you take a breath, then you hear it. Then it becomes the thing you kind of hum as you're walking down the hallway. You know, you walk right in an elevator and the song kind of sticks with you a little bit. Sometimes, unfortunately. What's, what's going on back there? What's the thing that's gripped you, that's driving you? That's your God. That's your God. Not, not officially probably, but functionally. And all of us were supposed to live 
We're supposed to live with the Lord as God and everything else ordered underneath it. We know that. But the problem is that consistently we do this. Consistently we switch things. Things get out of order in our lives such that we're driven by, drawn by, compelled by, Bible words, in love with, fearing something else. That's why verse 19 talks about in tandem, you forget the Lord and turn to other gods. They they work together. You can't just move something out and have nothing there that you are following and worshiping and bowing down to. Something's always in that spot. And his warning is, it must be the Lord. You cannot forget Him. We must take care to not forget the Lord and go after other gods because it's fatal to our souls. 19 and 20. He says, I solemnly warn you, you will perish. He does not give life to those who claim to be focused on God. He does not give life to those who are externally connected to those who are focused on God. He gives life to those who are focused on God. Those who have not forgotten Him and moved Him off to the side which we can do, which we do do, even while talking about Him. We must hold to Him. So the question really is, do you remember Him? Do you remember the Lord? Is He what's driving you? Is He the one you fear in the biblical sense? Is He the one that you love above all things? Is He first in your heart and your affections and therefore coming out first in your hands? Written on your forehead and on your hands over your home. Deuteronomy 6. Or have you forgotten Him? Not literally. Of course, we're here in a church. We're talking about the Lord. It's impossible to forget Him. But we can pray and forget the Lord. We can read the Bible and forget the Lord. I look at myself. I spend a really large amount of my weekly time dealing with God. It's impossible for me to forget Him. Right? In one sense, yes. But I forget Him all the time. I need to look no further than my prayer life to realize I forget Him all the time. I received a prayer letter from a missionary this last week where he said, he's commenting on himself, and he said, I find that I plan more than I pray because planning is easier. And I took out planning and I put in work. I find that I work more than I pray. I talk more than I pray. I write more than I pray. I set up meetings and appointments to discuss issues and things with people more than I pray because it's easier. And frankly, I'm convinced that that's what produces results. I've forgotten God even while I'm talking about Him to people. Constantly. I'm not talking about something that happened to me last November. Constantly. What about you? Do you remember or have you forgotten? This passage challenges us. Don't forget, remember. He must be. 
He must be the one that occupies center stage in your heart and your mind. Is He? Is He the one that your mind runs to when you're trying to make a decision? Is He the one that influences, that guides, that directs when you consult? It's a, this is a challenge to us, and it is especially a challenge to us living where we live because we are immersed up to our necks in the particular dangerous context this passage warns us about. We live up to here in a society full of situations that are conducive to pride and not humility because of our abundance and ease. It's obviously the, the central issue, the, the, the second contrast that's tied to their forgetting. The very blessing that God seeks to bestow on His people and that He has poured out on this country in fabulous abundance. The very blessings that are meant to be evidence of His wonderful, gracious, faithful, trustworthy goodness become snares to us because they also tend to feed our pride. The very stuff that should point to Him and make us remember Him does so for a little while. We live in verse 10 for just a little while. We enjoy all of the bounty of the land. We eat and, and have our, full, our, our fill. We drink and have our fill. We enjoy the, the blessing of peace with God. We live in, in homes that, that are filled with peace. We delight in the rest that He gives our souls. We take comfort in the, the knowledge that our sovereign God reigns over all of the earth and is steering things to do us good. We rejoice in that. And we, we lift up our voices and we bless His holy name for it because we know it has come from His hand to us. We live in verse 10 for a little while, but consistently in our fallenness we slide down into verse 11 and somehow slide into the delusion that it has come from our hands. We sowed it, we harvested, we worked for it, we paid for it ourselves, didn't we? So thanks for nothing. Human pride pushes out God. We forget Him. Look at my hands. I'm, I'm the one who did this, aren't I? I'm the one who made myself rich by my strength, by my power. The lunacy of it. Intellectually, we know this. Our physical body strength peaks sometime in our 20s on average. The doctors in the room can correct me on that. Sometime in your 20s, you're about as strong and healthy as you're going to be. Most of us are over the hill. Our, our, for most of us, our earning power peaks sometime in our 50s. 40s, 60s, 50s. And by 60, we're all on the decline. Most of us. Yet we still somehow manage to live amidst peace and ease and luxury. And make no mistake of it, we're, we're in some recession here. Some of us have been out of work for years and still live better than 90% of the world. 
We live in luxury here, even in the midst of a recession and two wars. It's remarkable, isn't it? We're in a, we're in a, a big recession at two wars, and look how we live. What abundant blessing God has placed on this country. And in pride, we rise up and say, it's come from my own hands. We know it's, it's lunacy. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust, will be red over every single one of us. And at some points in life, we realize that. When we're in the wilderness, coming to that. When we're in the wilderness, we realize that, but a lot of times, we manage to kind of cloud it out. Thinking much of ourselves and forgetting God. It's pride. It's a breaking of the first commandment. We will perish for it. Verses 19 and 20 say, if this is you, you will perish. Which should cause a problem for us because it is every single one of us. We forget Him. Time without number. And follow after our own ways. Perhaps maybe turning to a, to some other God or idol. But most commonly, I think, turning to the God we see in the mirror in the morning. We're in trouble if that's where this ends. But it isn't. Thankfully, we have a God who is a God of grace. That takes us to the second point. The second observation from the passage. We must take care that we not forget God. But secondly... God responds in grace to the forgetfulness of His people. God responds in grace to the forgetfulness of His people. Which I think right off sounds wrong, given what verses 19 and 20 say. I just mentioned them again. You can read them there. It it seems pretty clear. It's in English in my Bible. I, I can read it. You will perish for forgetting God and not obeying Him. That's not grace, that's wrath. So where do I get grace? Think this through. The wrath of God falls on disobedience, on law-breaking, on forgetting Him, on setting up something else as God, worshiping it, and turning away from Him. Disobedience, law-breaking. We've all done that. And so I asked a few minutes ago, if you forget God, you know, what happens? Well, we perish. And so all of us stand there with the wrath of God bearing down on us like a freight train. Until in steps verse 3. As you look at verse 3 and you read it, it's talking about God working in the desert to teach us that man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And as I think that through, I think, how is that the solution? That's the problem. He's trying to teach me that I don't live on the things that are in my hands, but that life comes from God. I should turn to Him and remember Him. And that's what I don't do. We just established that. How is that a solution? That's the problem. Except for what Matthew 4 tells us about that. If you are here a few weeks ago, we touched on Matthew 4 when we were in Deuteronomy 6. 
I'm going to try to lose you in all the references here. We were in Deuteronomy 6 when we went to Matthew 4. And mentally we're going to Matthew 4 again, though we're not going to turn there. Because what's going on in Matthew 4 is that God's trying to show us something about God the Son, Jesus. Here in Deuteronomy, in chapter 6 and chapter 8, we find God doing something amongst His people, trying to teach them something that we reject and turn away from. He's trying to teach us here in this chapter to remember Him, trust in Him alone, realize that life comes from His hand alone and therefore follow Him. And we don't, we step into 19 and 20 and therefore are under wrath. But Matthew 4 points out that there was one Son of God who when faced with this lesson, led by God into the wilderness for 40 days, without any provision, hungry, thirsty, tempted by Satan, take it into your own hands and provide, said, quoted this verse, verse 3, no, life does not come from my own provision. It comes from the mouth of God. I will trust Him. And he steps away from 19 and 20 into blessing. So the lesson comes, we disobey and step into wrath. The lesson comes to Jesus, He obeys and steps into righteousness, but went to the cross anyway. Why? He had righteousness. He's not going to perish. The wrath of God will never fall on Him, but He goes to the cross anyway. Why? God made Him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we could become the righteousness of God. That's grace. That's God responding in grace to our forgetfulness. We forget Him, turn away from Him, and walk into peril. And God says, I will send My Son in human flesh who will perfectly keep the law and go to the cross accursed for you who believe anyway. That's the key. You who believe. He does not give life to anybody who just claims it. You must believe. And if you trust Him, He will trade places with you. And stand you under righteousness. Stand you in grace before God forgiven. Forgetting Him and still forgiven. That's remarkable. It should not be. But it is. It's the message of the cross. It is the glory of what Jesus has done. That He would come and die for His enemies who are wandering out there somewhere forgetting Him, that He would die for His enemies to make them His friends. It is the glory of Christ. God responds in grace to forgetfulness. So embrace that grace. Get out of verses 19 and 20 by embracing the grace of God in Christ. But there is more grace even in this passage. That is, that is grace, I think, astounding grace, amazing grace. But there is more grace in here. It has to do with all the verses related to the wilderness, which is showing us around verse 3. He is gracious 
to deal with our forgetfulness by making us righteous in His sight, by forgiving us of our sin. But as the passage that Pastor Kurt read earlier from Titus 2 says, that the grace that brings salvation also is the grace that teaches us to say no to ungodliness. And now, us being saved, we're no longer in peril from verse 19 and 20, but we should read 19 and 20 and say, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be there. I don't want to forget God and so dishonor Him. Help! And His grace comes to teach us to say no to that ungodliness. Look in verses 2 to 5 and see the purpose statements in there. It was verse 16. And make no mistake, he's got a purpose in taking them into the wilderness. He led you so that he might humble you, testing you. That's purpose. Humbled them, verse 3, fed them with unknown means so that he might make something known to them. Verse 16, fed you with manna so that he might humble you and test you to do you good. That's also purpose. There are two purpose statements there. Four times. There's a purpose here. He's doing something intentionally. What is it? Well, the answer in the text builds through verses 2 to 6. He seeks to humble his people, to bring them down, to destroy pride. That's the great enemy that is mentioned in the second half of the contrast. Twice. He's humbling us in the desert. And as we hunger and thirst, come to the end of our ropes, we find our own inability We discover it. We realize our resources are lacking. We face danger and perhaps even threat to life as God graciously kicks out all the supports that we human beings use to prop up our lives. He empties our pockets, so to speak, graciously. We trust in our own strength, so He makes us weak. We rest in the fact that we have food, so He makes us hungry. We trust in our own wisdom and so He thwarts our plans. Whatever it is in life, He's graciously emptying your pockets to test you to see what's in there and then to show you what should be in there, where to go. Don't miss the point there. His his gracious purpose in hardship and trial is to teach us something that is very difficult to learn amidst abundance and ease. To teach us that all the stuff that we have is not what we need. All the stuff that we have, the the bread in our hands, the money in our pockets, is not where life comes from, and we must not trust our resources. We must trust Him. Life comes out of His mouth. He is the source of life. We must know that, and he, He is so determined to teach it to us. It's His discipline on us. Where did the writer of Hebrews get the idea of God disciplining His People like a father, his son. From here. It's his discipline on us to teach us what we must know. To do us good in the end, as verse 16 concludes. And realize the good in the end is not defeating them in the land. It makes no sense to say, I'm going to starve you so that I will feed you. They were being fed before. Why, why go through the hassle? It's, I'm going to starve you so that I can feed you and therefore teach you who's the feeder and where to look. I want to starve you so as to feed you, to turn you into like little 
newly hatched birds in a nest. When mother shows up, they open wide, ready to receive whatever comes out of her mouth. Because that's life, and they know it instinctively. His discipline on us is to teach us that lesson. And He teaches it in the wilderness. Brothers and sisters, like verse 5 says then, take it to heart. Know this in your heart. God disciplines us like a loving father disciplines his children for our good to do us good in the end. That's what he's doing in hardships in your life. Whatever the hardship is that you're facing in life. He's trying to teach you to turn you towards Him. We face myriads of hardships. Some of them clear and obvious economic hardships. Some of us are without jobs or underemployed. Health hardships. From little aches and pains to, to life-threatening diseases, we have the spectrum here in our congregation. But also other things that we might not call hardships that are just difficult that are trying, strained relationships, intractable problems that you just can't solve. For me, it's the weekly battle with the sermon, to be honest. This often happens. I'm ironically working through this thing and then realizing that the frustration is the lesson. To me, it's a lesson to me. It's the hardship that I face this week. I face it, it's a little one, but I face it every week. And in that, he's trying to teach us something. And it's different depending on what your trial is and where you are and who you are. But the point is, take it to heart that this is his gracious discipline trying to work something into you so that you will remember him and not forget him. And not run off like I do to thinking more and planning more and writing more. Because that's what I think produces life. It's going to come from my hands and my mind, right? It's pride and it's folly. Something He wants to teach you here. So, how we are to approach then hardships is to weep in them if that's appropriate. I am not saying... The Bible never says that that we should suppress sorrow. That's ridiculous. We're not to suppress sorrow, pretend to call evil good. Pretend that that the problems are really not problems, they're just opportunities. But at the same time to realize that they are opportunities. And there is blessing in it. And it is grace from God to do us good in the end, to more closely fasten you to Him, to gift you with remembrance, with, to gift you with a memory, so you won't forget Him. That also is His grace to you in your forgetfulness. See it as that. Embrace it. Look to Him, and as you cry, also rejoice. He's at work in you. In the, in the wilderness. Take care not to forget God. 
He's the only source of life. I'm going to give you a few minutes to think about that and process it. We're going to start moving towards communion. And I want want to alert you to the fact, too, that at the end of communion, I'm going to give you some more time. If you want to sit in here to think and process, if you want to pray with an elder off to the side, perhaps, and the reason I do this is it occurs to me that I I know some of us are facing hardships in life that are that are very challenging to you. If you want to work that through or pray it through with somebody else, take some time now, but also know you're going to have a little bit of time at the end of communion or to talk and pray about anything else that you like. So you can begin that now and know that you'll have some more time at the end. So spend a few minutes and then I'll, I'll close this and move us towards communion. Father, would you do your work in our hearts and fasten them to you Remind us of who you are. Help us to keep remembering. And I pray, Lord, speak to us now through these elements of the bread and the cup that point us to the cross. Speak. Open our hearts so that we'll listen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.